I want to lay out a few things as we get started here tonight. Uh, the first, just in case you're unaware uh, of, of what it is we're doing tonight, we are beginning a six-week study uh, called, Did God Really Say? And the focus is basically on um, what I would call a bare minimum doctrine of Scripture. And that language is very specifically chosen. Um, what I'm suggesting uh, is that if our view of the Bible falls below this line, we really have no Bible at all. If, uh, it's, it's kind of like this. There are lots of things that uh, are a part of Christian doctrine. But our view of what the Bible is, our, our doctrine of Scripture, if you will, is not just something that Christians should believe something about. It's the lens through which we know what to believe at all. What we determine scripture is helps us to determine what to do with scripture, okay? And so uh, it becomes very significant for that reason. Now, it's worth pointing out, it's going to take us six weeks to do this, and so um, any given night, tonight included, we're going to touch on a lot of things and we're not going to finish any of the things we touch on. Uh, added to uh, the rest of the series, which I would welcome you to come back for, every Sunday night we will have a text in question and answer period following so we can touch on some of those threads tonight as well as the ones that may not get addressed in the series proper. Um, so, uh, so here's the layout, the format, if you will, for the next six, six weeks, just if you're curious. Tonight, we're going to talk about the concept of, uh, of revelation. The scripture is something that God has spoken. And this is introductory as well as foundational. Once we've done that, we're going to look at the four attributes of scripture that the reformers of the Reformation, think Martin Luther, think Calvin, um, think that generation, used to distinguish their view of scripture from the Catholic Church. And those four particular views are the necessity of scripture, the sufficiency of scripture, the clarity of scripture, and the authority of scripture. And so we'll take one of those every week for the next four weeks, and then finally, we'll finish looking at the power of scripture. And so that's the plan for the next six weeks. As far as tonight goes, uh, like I said, we will look at uh, the revelation of scripture, and then I'll just transition to my laptop over there, uh, and then we can field some question and answers. You don't need to be bold or vocal uh, to get your question answered, as you can see, there's a text-in number at the top of the screen. It's an anonymous service. It will just throw it right to my laptop, and then I can throw it to, on the screen uh, and address it. So even as I'm speaking tonight, if something comes up, feel free to just text in your questions. Um, all right, with that, with that foundation being laid, tonight we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Isaiah chapter 45. If you don't have a Bible with you tonight, right in the back of the pew in front of you, you should find one of our pew Bibles. And if you turn to page 606, you should find the passage that we're looking at tonight. Once again, that's in Isaiah chapter 45, page 606.
Isaiah is a prophet to Israel at a particular point in their history. And so he's writing after God has brought Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, brought them into the promised land, after they've settled there, after the reign and rule of King David uh, and his son Solomon. Uh, In fact, it's many kings down the line now, and there's been a consistent pattern in Israel's history. If you read the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the book of Moses, uh, it lays out the covenant between God and Israel the agreement that God would be their God and they would be their people uh, and how it would look like to be worshipers of God. But for a long period of Israel's history, they were neglecting the covenant, were rebelling against the God, were worshiping the gods of other nations. And so God is consistently sending prophets to call them back to the covenant and to warn them of the coming consequences. Isaiah is one of the last prophets on that list. And so he doesn't just call them and warn them to come back. He lays out the impending consequence. Specifically in history, this is the Babylonians who come in, conquer Israel, uh, and then deport them from their own land back into Babylon. And so Isaiah lays out that this is coming, but he also looks beyond it. He looks beyond this judgment that God is going to bring to the deliverance uh, that God is going to bring that will bring Israel back out of Babylon, restore restore to them the land. In fact, this book is so forward-looking, it reaches all the way into the days of the New Testament with the coming of Jesus and beyond. Here in Isaiah 45... Uh, Isaiah has, um, speaking for God, in about, I hate doing this, this is the hardest thing. You know how when we talk about the 20th century, we really mean the 1900s? I, to this day, don't know if that's true with BC. Okay, so I'm going to say this, and then I'm going to give you the general year range, but I do not remember. But what we're talking about here is effectively Isaiah writing in the 7th century. No, the 6th century BC, that's going to be my guess. Uh, And the things that he's touching on here, the Babylonian captivity, that's 150 years later, okay? One of the things he does here that's so incredibly unique is he names a king by name 150 years before he rules, and not a Babylonian king, but a Persian king. He names the one who's going to conquer Babylon and lead the people back out of Babylon back eventually into Israel. His name is Cyrus, okay? Now what follows after that prediction is basically God summoning Israel and all the nations to a court case to prove that their gods they believe in are gods in contrast with the God who names Cyrus by name, okay? That's helpful for the context. What we're going to look at tonight begins in verse 18 and rolls through the end of the chapter. So let's read it together and then pray. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness, I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together. 
you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare, present your case, let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him who come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Let's pray. God, your word declares that you are the God who speaks who has spoken in human history, who reveals himself and desires to be made known. And so it's with confidence tonight that I ask that you would speak to us. It's with confidence tonight that I ask that you would make yourself known to us tonight. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us by your spirit in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Culturally, as modern Westerners, we have found ourselves in the last almost 200 years in a philosophical pickle. It begins with men like Descartes and like Hegel. It continues on through, um, through basically all of modern philosophy. It, it takes on many tracks, but it begins there, Hegel, Descartes, it begins with this wrestling uh, with how we can know what we know. Epistemology. How can we know what is true and what is false? How can we come to understanding in the world we live in? And this, to some degree, was a new question in Western philosophy that goes all the way back to the days of Greece, which was basically not a question of how can we know, but what do we know? and trying to come up with a conclusion. But this took a step back and it looked deeper. Uh, and this belief system that begins with Hegel, that follows kind of uh, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and these types of things, um, it started to say, okay, the only way we can know is to begin with ourselves. We have to start with us. We have to embrace, uh, and through that, we can know everything there is to know. And this was the birth of what we now call modernism, which effectively said, with enough observation and with the scientific method and with enough reason, we can come to know everything there is to know about our world. Okay? Now, effectively, modernism failed. And so now, many people label the time we are in as post-modernism. And the reason it failed is because when we begin with ourselves, we can learn a lot of things. But what we can't do is uh, deal with what Francis Schaeffer calls the mannishness of man. In other words, there are aspects of the human condition uh, that seem out of touch 
with our ability to reason and rationalize and observe. One of those is personality itself. Okay? Now, if you want to know the effect of this, you already know it. Okay? It's the reason why we have dreams based on the Truman Show. How do we know the people around us are not just actors, right? Or, or films like The Matrix. How do we know that the world we live in is a real world and not just some sort of programmed dream? All of this stuff begins, begins with Descartes. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Now you have to understand the goal of why he started there. The goal was to explain all that there is beginning with the one thing you can know for sure. And the only thing Descartes found that he could know for sure is if he's thinking about thinking, then he must exist. But the problem is, modernism was never able to take another step at all. Even Descartes in his day said, how do I know anything more than that? What if there's just a small demon perched on my shoulder whispering reality into my ear? I know I'm here, but what I see, what I hear, what I think, how do I know that any of that is real? Okay, and so that's the problem, that's the tension. But there are these things we know in life. There are these things we experience all the time that we have a hard time as human beings is just throwing under the bus of irrationality. One of them, like I said, is personality. Are you merely just a determination of cause and effect that begun all the way back at the beginning of the universe and is just rolling through now? Are you merely just... A, uh, a biological construct that's going through the pattern predisposed by its genetic predisposition? These are the questions that human beings started to wrestle with. Okay? Similar ones involve communication. Can the things you say from your point of reference ever be understood by my point of reference? Right? Einstein's theory of relativity, which deals with the physical world, recognize that the world uh, can only be compared when you're on a comparable axis, okay? And so, uh, so measuring speed, for example, is one thing for a person on a moving train and another for somebody standing outside the train. And so we took this and we put this to life, okay? And so here's another place where we experience this. Because of postmodernism, because of the failure of modernism to connect the dots between what we can think with our brains, what we can observe in the world, and then these things we encounter in life. Let me just give you one more illustration. Love. Is love just chemicals and synapses in the brain? Can you even know the person that you love is actually there? These are the things that modern philosophers have been wrestling with. So postmodernism has brought us to a place, and it has taught us to be a bit more humble. Not to assume we can access confidently, surely, fully all knowledge, but it's pushed even further. It says, because of the limitations of these things, no claim to absolute truth or perfect perspective is possible. It's equalized and relativized all viewpoints, and with it, usually, philosophically, all morality as well. There is no true or false, there is no right or wrong, it's all relativized because we really can't know for sure. Now, the thing is, human beings may come to these philosophies and feel that despair, but we can't actually live there. So let me just give you one more illustration that comes from the philosophical world. Hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. 
It involves not just how we interpret things like the Bible, but any given piece of communication. Hermeneutics even looks at, in conversation, when one person talks to another, how is it that the person who's receiving that communication can understand what was said? But because of postmodernism, a new version of hermeneutics was introduced, which is called radical hermeneutics. And hermeneutics basically says that whatever the speaker, whatever the author meant is completely lost to the recipient. It's completely limited. There's no way to understand. So the best thing you can do is ask, what does this piece of communication mean to me? And so a radical reading of Scripture says it doesn't matter what the passage meant. It doesn't matter what the author was saying. What's important is what you get out of it, what you see in the text, and maybe in some forms of radical hermeneutics, maybe what you as a community draw out of the text. So this is, this is where we find ourselves, but basically they, it's led to a couple of places and they all presume a closed box. Okay, and this is what I want to point out as we get into our text tonight. So for example, materialism. If you've ever seen Carl Sagan's classic, The Cosmos, the one that Neil deGrasse Tyson updated a few years ago. Go back to the original one and open up the first episode and it begins with a picture of galaxies and stars and planets. And Carl Sagan says, the universe, all that is, all that was, all that will ever be. Okay, for Carl Sagan, for materialism, everything we can see in the universe is all there is. There's nothing beyond it. There is no God. There is no transcendent. There is no spiritual realm. There's nothing. It's just a box, and there's nothing outside the box. Okay? Another version of this that sprung from that same place is deism. Okay? Now, if you read early American history or early American philosophy, uh, if you look at the, uh, uh, the fathers of American democracy, deism will come up all the time. And effectively, the difference in, in materialism and deism is very simple. From a deistic viewpoint, there is a God. He made the world, but then he walked away and has no interaction with it whatsoever. And so although there's something outside the box for the deist, there's no access to that. The box is closed. Okay. And so the illustration deism often uses is of a watchmaker. God intricately and uniquely built the world as it is and wound it up and left it to its own devices. Okay. And so when deists read the Bible, they assumed the miraculous or God speaking was impossible. And they tried instead to sift out of the Bible uh, what would be left over, what was natural, and uh, these types of things. And then finally, there is the rationalist. Now, this one we have to be careful with because there's a difference between the idea of being rational and being a rationalist. There's a difference between recognizing that human beings need reason and making reason the sole and primary way of understanding. Okay? Rationalists basically said that anything we can know about the universe... Whether it's there or not, it doesn't really matter. But anything we can actually know, anything we can actually discern, anything we can operate on or call true, we have to be able to get to from our own brains. Once again, through observation, through the scientific method, and through logic. 
And so rationalism is actually the most ironic of all of them uh, because it's not just a closed box, it's, it's a closed circuit. The mind is just a loop and anything that doesn't exist in your own head doesn't exist at all. It's, it's Descartes to the T. And so it's stuck in this place uh, and it's very limited. And so all of them are closed to the possibility of knowing what Francis Schaeffer calls the upper story. We live in the lower story of fact and observation, but the upper story, there is an impenetrable veil between those two things. Maybe because there's nothing there. Maybe because what's there doesn't penetrate anymore, deistic. Or maybe because we have no way to interact with it because all we have is rationality. All we have is the capability of our brains. And the reason I lay this all on the table is because the worldview of the Bible is tremendously different. Okay. There is a very common illustration of postmodernism that basically says, look, all faith systems, all belief systems, all meta-narratives of understanding, all religions are relative because it's like, they say, three blind men who come across an elephant. And one comes up to the leg of the element and feels around a bit and says, we have found a tree. And another comes up against the side and says, no, actually, brother, it's a wall. And then the third comes up to the trunk and says, no, it's a great snake. And so they say, that's the problem with the human condition. All of us are just grasping at something in the dark and we each have our own little piece. Now, to be fair, or I should say to be honest, it's not really a good illustration. In general, there's no reason to believe why those three blind men couldn't continue the conversation or take a step to the left or the right or explore more of the elephant. Okay. But there's also an inherent flaw, and it's the great one of our times, that it is impossible to say all beliefs are relative and live that way. In fact, the illustration implies this is a total because the people who say this and relativize all other faith systems, what are they feeling in the dark? Apparently the elephant, right? They're saying all of you only have a piece, but we know there's a whole elephant there, okay? They can't escape the absolute claim they're making. They say all religions are equal because all religions are equally false, but that's a truth claim. But here's what's different from the biblical understanding. It completely changes the game. It's one thing for blind men to feel in the dark an elephant. It's another thing if the one that they're coming in contact with is personal, if he can speak for himself. Okay? In, in all honesty, going back to the illustration, this is an elephant. So if it makes a sound like an elephant, might that be also an important cue? What the Bible proclaims is there is a divide between the lower story, the world that we live in, the world we encounter, and the upper story. But it's not limited to no contact with that upper story, not because we're so capable. In fact, the postmodern position with all of its limits, not, do, not only do Christians agree with all of those, but we also add one to the list. Biblically, you're also a sinner in rebellion against God, which means both you have blindness to the reality of God and you resist it actively. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1. He says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
In other words, it's not just that we're hard of hearing if God speaks, but we also have our fingers in our ears, okay? Nonetheless, the Bible maintains that we can know that God exists because, or I should say not because, we from here at the bottom can somehow discern him there, but that because he from there can speak to us. So the gap is there, but bridging it from a finite place to an infinite place is a lot harder than from an infinite place bridging it to a finite place. Okay. Have you ever seen Horton Hears a Who? Or read it? I don't feel like I have to defend the importance of reading a Dr. Seuss book. It's fine if you've just seen the cartoon. Uh, but either way, there is an elephant who, because of his big ears, becomes aware that on this small thistle is an entire planet of people. Okay? But nobody else can hear the people on that planet because nobody else has the hearing ability. Have you ever noticed how it doesn't work the other way around? When Horton speaks to the little people, they're aware of his voice, right? It's, it's one-directional difficulty. Okay. Notice here that in these verses, not only does it assume that God is there, it also assumes that God speaks. In fact, it's the defining characteristic of this passage. Look again at verse 18. For thus says the Lord... Right there, it presents a God who speaks. And then notice as it continues, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. We'll come back to that in a second, but notice, I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And so here, not only does God claim to speak, but he says effectively that he's not hidden. For the Christian, God is knowable because of the concept of self-revelation, that God desires to be known, that he makes himself known, that he is the God who speaks. Now, how does God do this? What does it look like? Okay. First off, we have to ask, is it even possible? Because many of those modernists and postmodernists suggest that even if God does communicate, it's inherently incomprehensible to us in the same way that if we were to speak to an ant, an ant can't understand us, right? Because we have a completely different level of being. Okay. Now, actually, their comparison is probably right. Despite what Pixar may have us believe, there is a different order in being between human beings and animals that limits the possibility of communication. But in the biblical story, there's two things to keep in mind. Okay? One, from a biblical understanding, communication is something that goes inherently in the personality of God. If there is a God, he is a communicating God. I'm talking about before the existence of creation, before Genesis 1-1, the Bible presents a God who is triune, who is community, who is in his own being, Father, Son, and Spirit, capable of and constantly engaging in communication. Okay. Second, the Bible says that unlike the rest of creation, mankind was created in God's image. In other words, 
we are on a different level of being than the animal kingdom or the plant kingdom or creation itself. We are intentionally made in a way that we can communicate with and God can communicate with us. Okay. And so that changes the possibility here. In fact, it's really interesting, but occasionally when God speaks in the scripture, he speaks in a named language. Like in the book of Acts, when a voice speaks from heaven to Paul, it says that he speaks to him in Aramaic. Okay? It, it speaks as if there's actual linguistic communication in the receiver, in the recipient's mother tongue. Okay? But, but once again, how does God speak? When we talk about revelation, we talk about a couple of different aspects. As I would think you would assume from the name of the study, the Bible is one of them. But let's begin at the beginning. Notice where he begins here. He begins with creation. In fact, one of the implications that he's making here is you can know, you can know who God is through creation. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God who formed the earth and made it. Now, here's the thing. In, in Isaiah's day, there were many other explanations of the universe that involved the divine. Almost all of them in that time were polytheistic and not monotheistic. And almost all of them, the divine realm was an inherent part of inside the box. Remember what we were talking about earlier? And so the gods were already in the universe and part of it, it was chaos. And through their chaotic behavior, mostly violence and sex, they brought about earth and human beings and these types of things, but they were part of the box. They could be manipulated through particular rituals. They were uh, made in our image and not the other way around, and so they were vindictive and selfish and these types of things. Okay? Uh, they were not infinite by nature, but the Bible declares that God created the heavens and the earth, all that is, and so he's outside, but he's also personal. Uh, in fact, the Bible says that one of the ways God reveals himself is through creation itself. And so, for example, Psalm 19 has two halves. The first half speaks of creation. It opens, the heavens declare the glory of God. Day after day, they utter their speech. It goes on and it says that this is a sermon that's heard in every time and in every place that you need, know, need not know any specific language to understand because it's all around us. The second half, interestingly, deals with the law of the Lord. It deals with the written word of God. And so there's these two facets. But getting back to creation, if you look at Psalm 19, if you look at Romans chapter 1, if you look at Acts 17 when Paul is preaching to the philosophers in Athens, in each case, it makes the statement that we can know from creation itself that God is. Like Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. When we look at the earth as it is, we can infer a creator. And we can assume if there's someone who created all these things and we're part of this creation, that we are accountable and responsible to him. Theologians call this general revelation for two reasons. Okay? One, because it's generally available. And two, because the information, the content is limited. It's general in nature. Okay? 
And so even here, we see an emphasis on Scripture that God reveals himself in the world we made. Now, even the deist would agree in that. Even the deist would look at that. But what's significant, once again, is uh, the problem with deism presents a God who makes a watch. But as it says here, notice uh, it says, uh, verse 18 again, he created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. Uh, What that implies in that last sentence there is two things. One purpose, okay? The earth was not a random act of creation. It has a purpose. That's what it means here when it says that he established it and even that he formed it to be inhabited. It speaks of intention. It speaks of will. It speaks of purpose. And then second, notice that creation was made to be inhabited, meaning that there is a significant part, once again, that human beings play in creation. That there's a sense where we're a part of creation, but there's a sense where we are playing out our lives on the stage of creation that was made for us. Um, and so God doesn't just make a watch. He makes a setting and then he populates it with people for a purpose. Okay, there's a personal reality, an image of God reality that deists don't take into account, into account even when they read the scriptures. But not only do we see God speaking through creation, but notice in verse 19, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. The second thing it says here is that in history, to a particular group of people, that God has spoken. Right? He says, I wasn't hidden. I didn't say in secret. What's the contrast there? I said openly to the people of Jacob. And so the second category of revelation involves the fact that God has revealed himself to a particular people in history, in space-time, interacting on this level, the level of observation, on the level of science and fact and history. And when we talk about those things, we see two different elements of it. One is God's actions. God does stuff. He shows up. There's a burning bush, right? There's a pillar of fire. There are things that happen in Scripture. In fact, some people have taken, uh, taken the Bible and settled just for that and said basically because true communication between the divine realm and the human realm is impossible, we can take the acts of the Bible as being significant places where they've encountered, and I hate this word, the numinous. The numinous It just means the ethereal. It means, basically, it's this broad box for things we don't understand, okay? And so, effectively, then, the Bible story becomes man's interpretation of divine actions. And so, things happen, and they go, oh, this is what it must mean. But the Bible pushes it further. It doesn't just present a God who does stuff and some human observers who both record it and then interpret it, it actually claims that God gives the interpretation of the acts that he does. I'll give you two very big, broad, Old Testament, New Testament illustrations. Okay, first is with the Exodus. In the Exodus, God does something. Remember the plagues that come on Egypt. 
The way it's described, what does God do in the days of the Exodus? He brings Israel out from slavery with a mighty hand. Okay? That's what God does. But if you keep reading through Exodus, through Leviticus, through Numbers, through Deuteronomy, it's constantly taking what God has done and then providing interpretation to it, providing framework. And not from Moses. Not from those who observed it, but in the same phrase that we encounter here, thus says the Lord, and he says things like this, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand, therefore I will be your God and you will be my people. Interpretation. Not just what has God done, but what does it mean? And he says, let me tell you. In the same way, Jesus shows up in the New Testament and we see action. Jesus is born, he lives, he does miracles, he preaches, and then as he, as he predicts, he dies at the hands of the Romans, he resurrects. But what does the rest of the New Testament do? It takes especially that significant final act of Jesus' life, his death, burial, and resurrection, and says, now let me tell you what it all means. Action and words. And that's important, okay? Because we all understand that people who look at actions can easily come to different conclusions. If you don't believe me, just look at last week's election, right? We all watched the same election, but the interpretations of what it all means are very different, okay? However, it's much easier for us to agree upon not the interpretation of that event, but our interpretation of interpretations of those events. Once something is verbalized, once something is written, then we have rules of engagement, communication rules that help us to understand. We may not agree with what someone is saying, but it doesn't mean that it's impossible to understand. And so God condescends and speaks, not just acts. Okay. In fact, one of the primary ways he does that is illustrated by Isaiah here himself. When Isaiah opens in verse 18 and says, For thus says the Lord... Notice that there's two reference points there. One is Isaiah who is speaking, but what is he speaking? His own words? He doesn't say, thus says Isaiah, right? He says, thus says the Lord. The prophets functioned as God's representatives, speaking on his behalf, conveying his message to Israel. In this passage, that reality of the God who speaks to the prophets is not just left to take or leave, but is at the core of Isaiah's argument here and comes with validation. How do we know that Isaiah speaks for the Lord? That's the point of the whole passage, isn't it? Look again at what he says here. He says in verse 20, Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together the survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God they cannot save. Listen, the Bible is the first one to testify to the possibility of false religion. Okay. It knows that people can be deceived. In fact, it's very well acquainted with the fact that people can create false ideologies to enslave other people. It's full of stories like that but it makes a contrast between those and this, between the gods of the nations and the gods of the Bible. Why? Verse 21, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told you this long ago? What is the this therefore? It's the prediction I told you about in chapter 
45 verse 1. Who told you that Cyrus would be the one to deliver Israel, to conquer Babylon? Isaiah is writing these words 150 years before the birth of Cyrus. And he says, you want to know that I am the real and true God? Who else told you what was coming, the end from the beginning? Prophecy, or the role of a prophet, is more than predictive. Not everything that comes out of a prophet's mouth involves the future. But it does see those predictions as validating the fact that they speak for God, the one who made the world, the one who's sovereign over the world, the one who knows the future and even brings it to pass. That actually, that argument, if you want to read it through, Isaiah 45, 46, 47, 48, the whole way through, that's the case that's being made. What's unique about the God of the Bible? Not just that he is uh, stated to have spoken, but that he has spoken and things have come to pass. And so we have uh, this emphasis here that God has spoken and we have the record of the things God has said in the scriptures. Now that's another place where some people stop and say that's the total of revelation is that the Bible records things that God has done and the Bible records things that God has said but the Bible itself is merely a record of those things. And so if we want to encounter the word of God we can open the Bible and find the places where God has spoken, but the rest of it, the rest of it, the rest of the scriptures is just the words of men. But by the time you get to the New Testament, that is an untenable position from the Bible's own point of view. Okay. Now you can see this in the Old Testament as well, but it's helpful to look in the New Testament. And I'll give you just two illustrations. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Verse 16, Paul says, all scripture is divinely inspired. Notice he's dealing with a category. He's defining something significant about the nature of scripture, and he says that it's divinely inspired. Now, in English, that's easy to misunderstand because we can walk outside and fall and be inspired, right? And so we can look at that, and what he's saying is, in some way, God stirred up people, and they were so stirred up that they wrote the Bible, But the Greek phrase is different. The Greek phrase there is all scripture is theopanousto. Theo being God. And pneuma, panousto, meaning breathed. Okay, breath. Not only that, but the way that it's parsed, it's not as if man wrote the Bible and God breathed life into it. The way that it's parsed in that sentence is that God breathed out the Bible itself like I'm doing now, every word is full of my breath because it's coming out of my mouth. That's what Paul says scripture is. Not only that, but Peter, in 2 Peter says, for no prophecy is of individual interpretation, but the prophets spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you can see the earmarks of this across how all of the New Testament speaks of the old. Now I mentioned, you can see these things in the old, why do I say we should look in the new? Because the new is the only place where Bible authors are also Bible readers, right? And so we can open up and we can read John reading Genesis. We can read Jesus engaging with Moses. We can read Peter talking about the prophets, okay? And so that's significant. 
But effectively here, what I'm saying is that when you look at how the Bible thinks of itself, it's not just a written record of the divine word. It is the divine word. One of the most significant things you can read that really makes this case, that this is the the belief the Bible presents, um, is a work by B.B. Warfield called Authority and Inspiration. Now, B.B. Warfield was an old Harvard professor about 100 and, I don't know, 25 years ago. Uh, It is a slog. It is a rough read. He is the guy who shows all his work, you know. Uh, But there's one chapter in particular where all he does is say, let's look at the language of how the Bible is referenced in the New Testament. How do they talk about the Bible? And what he shows is consistently the authors interchange God says for the Bible says or for Moses says or for Scripture says. They use it back and forth. He shows that the language that's used significantly sees the words of the Old Testament as being definitively authoritative on any given issue. And then he comes to this conclusion, which I want to read with you because I think it sums up um, what I'm trying to say. He says, Scripture is conceived from the point of view of the writers of the New Testament, not merely as the record of revelations, but as itself a part of of the redemptive revelation of God. Not merely as a record of redemptive acts, which God is saving the world, but as itself one of these redemptive acts, having its own part to play in the great work of establishing and building up the kingdom of God. And so here's what we've learned so far. There is a sense where God is constantly revealing himself just in creation itself. We call that again general revelation. And then there's special relations or special revelation. This is where God in particular times to particular people has spoken. And that includes these uh, times that he spoke to Israel through his works and words, and it includes also the Bible itself. Then in a significant way, the Bible calls itself, refers to itself, identifies itself as the word of God, God speaking. Now, there's one last layer or one last level to God's revelation. Hebrews puts it this way. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, God, who at various times and various ways revealed himself through the prophets, has in these last days revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Okay. And so, not only does the Bible personify or picture God as speaking and acting in human history, but as God becoming a human and walking and living in space-time, in a particular local area, Israel, speaking in a particular human tongue, Aramaic. And it uh, it says that that revelation is so significant that it's final and complete. John puts it this way. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the one who is from the very bosom of of God, he has made him known. In fact, remember Philip's question to Jesus? Jesus, if you just show us the Father, that would be enough. Philip says, or Jesus responds, have you been with me so long, Philip, and you don't understand? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Colossians says that he is the full manifestation of his glory. Hebrews goes on to make the same point in verse 3. Okay. And so God has not just revealed himself by authoring human history, engaging with it, predicting what's going to happen, carrying it through because he really is God, explaining what history means, but by writing himself into history as one of its characters. I told you the illustration about the elephant earlier. Here's another one that's very popular, especially with universalists and Unitarians. The world we live in is like a church, just like this one. And all of humanity is gathered around particular stained glass windows in the church. And so there's the Islam window, and there's the atheist window, and there's the, you know, each window is different. Each one is different in its colors and in its design, and we all gather around the one, but we're all seeing the same light. Now, I'll be honest. I'm just as much a product of postmodernism as everyone else here. That's a nice vision. It's almost heartwarming. Right? It, there's this beauty, this universal reality that actually we could use a whole lot of right now. Okay? Because right now, the human condition, we need those things that remind us how much we have in common. But the story the Bible tells is that Christianity is not just one of those windows. But the light that comes through those stained glass windows became a man, walked through the doors of the church and said, let me tell you who I am. That's a different thing. How do we know that God is knowable? Because according to Christianity, he has made himself known. Okay. So that's Revelation, but let's take a moment here just to look at the content. The content of Revelation. What is it that God has said? We can see it here in Isaiah. Look here at verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Now remember the context here. The Israel that he's writing to is a future Israel that has been deported and is living in hostile territory under a pagan king who worships foreign gods. And here he doesn't speak to Israel and say, I am going to bring you salvation. I'm going to bring you deliverance, even though that's where he starts in verse 1. He speaks here and he says, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. What is the revelation of God? What is it, this message that he wants to convey to humanity? Significantly here, as it is across scripture, it's a message of salvation. Now, if you read carefully, there is much in the Bible that is a message of judgment, and that's true. But I would suggest to you one way to think of that reality is like a diagnosis from a doctor. That doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't also present a cure. And the emphasis of God's revelation is first, this is who I am. And second, this is what I've done on your behalf. Those are the two great themes of special revelation. Creation tells us enough to know that there's a God we're responsible to. But special revelation tells us who it is who speaks. And it tells us what he wants from us. And the message here is, turn to me and be saved. And notice the significance of that. Not fix yourself and be saved. Not 
Turn away from your sin and be saved, although that's implied here. Something more significant. Turn to me and be saved. If you have the old King James or even the new King James, it says, look unto me and be saved. That's not a lot of activity, is it? How are we saved, according to the Bible? By looking to the God who saves us. In fact, that's significant because notice what he says one sentence before verse 22. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none beside me. The only way any will be saved from the human condition is through the God who is the only Savior. So says Isaiah. So says God. Jesus makes the same claim. In fact, it's why we can't settle. We can't settle to say, well, if Jesus is the full revelation, then what do we need the Bible for? Can't we just know who Jesus is and throw out the rest of the Bible that's awkward and hard for us to sit with sometimes? No, for two reasons. One, without the Bible, what Jesus? Which one? How do you know who he is? How do you know what he said? How do you know what, you did, what, uh, what he did? If you saw on the reliability, saw off the reliability of the New Testament, you have no place to stand on who Jesus is. But second, when you look at what Jesus says about the scriptures, he says some pretty significant things. After quoting a psalm, he says, don't you believe this? For the scriptures cannot be broken. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to overturn the Old Testament, overturn the law. I've not come to overturn it, but to fulfill it. And then most importantly, looking at the entire Old Testament, he says to his contemporaries, remember, this is a man in his 30s, who is currently unemployed and traveling without a home, preaching. And he says to men more respected and older than himself, the upper echelon of his religion, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but it is they that testify of me. He says, I am the main character and the primary focus of what we now call the Old Testament, of the scriptures of the Jews. Not only that, he does that in John chapter 5, in John chapter 14, he promises the apostles that he's appointed, that he's raised up, that he's trained, that he's going to send out to carry a message. He says, and when I'm gone, I will send the Holy Spirit and he will testify of me. And that's what we have in the New Testament. The Bible is about Jesus Christ. Okay, in fact, notice, notice where Isaiah finishes here. And so he says, turn to me and be saved, verse 22, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Now get this in the context. He's already given a word, the word of Cyrus. Cyrus will come. And he says, that's how you know I'm, I'm God. And he says, now let me give you another prediction. Let me give you another word, and this one also will not return without fulfillment. That's the idea there. Notice what it is. To me, every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Now that is an absolute truth claim. That is provocative in our day and age where, where we speak in such relativistic terms, but God says, let me make a prediction. At the end of all history, every knee will bow to me. And every tongue will confess that I am Lord. Now, if you read the next few verses, 
Some of that bowing looks like worship and some of it looks like submission. Some of it is salvation and some of it is judgment. It's not that everyone will celebrate Jesus as Lord, but all of them will recognize it. In fact, I just kind of spoiled the plot. But here's one of, I think, one of the greatest and most profound pivots in the Bible. God here says, I am saying a word, and it means that all of humanity is going to say a word. And that word is that I am Lord. But when we get to the New Testament, this verse in Isaiah is quoted twice. Once in the book of Romans and once in the book of Philippians. And it's the Philippians one I want to draw your attention to. Philippians chapter 2. Here Paul is presenting this revelation of Jesus. The one who was God, was with God, and became man. Okay? And so as it focuses on this revelation, listen to what it says. Have this mind, verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. So you see the downward slope there? God himself did not hold on to everything that means, but humbled himself, coming as a human being and enduring obedience to the Father, to death, and not just any death, but the point of the cross. And then we start to arch back up. Therefore, it says in verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Listen to this, verse 10. So at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is still common for people to suggest that the New Testament never presents the divinity of Jesus. That is only because they have not read the Old Testament. For a Jew trained at the feet of Gamaliel who is historically still respected as one of the great teachers of Judaism, to take this verse out of Isaiah that says, one day there is only one God and there is only one Savior and you will all bow before him, and then Paul to say, that's right, and his name is Jesus, is significant. Okay. But here's the thing about this revelation that we're talking about, the fact that God speaks. Yes, he conveys a message of salvation, but I want to label one more thing. I want to get rid of one more misunderstanding. When we talk about the Bible, we are not merely talking about the things God has said. Even, even in the fact that he said it through Paul's pen, said it through Matthew's gospel. It actually pushes further than that. And it says that through the word of God, God is still speaking, present tense. So, for example, Hebrews, which is effectively a sermon. It's a transcript of a sermon. He's engaging with a passage, if I remember right, out of the book of Joshua. And in speaking to his audience, he says this, for the Holy Spirit says. And then he quotes this book that was written thousands of years prior. We see this in Isaiah as well. Go back there and finish with me here. 
Remember here that Isaiah looks beyond not just the audience of Israel, but clearly here he looks beyond the time of Babylonian captivity, even the restoration of Persia. He looks all the way to the end of history, and what does he say? Verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Who is that? That's us. Tonight. This is what God is saying to us tonight. That's what we mean when we say that the Bible is revelation. We mean that God truly speaks. And so yes, we are full of limitations, our own finiteness, our own rational inability, the fact that we live in a world and we can only observe so far, and even if we push the limits of our exploration, right, it's still limited. The thing that makes Christianity capable of navigating out of the mire of confusion of modernism and postmodernism is because we believe in a God who speaks. And so when we make absolute truth claims, that's not because we have some sort of privileged perspective. It's because we have the word of God. And let me point out one last thing as we close. When we look at this revelation, we need to recognize it for what it is, which is grace. What I mean is that God has gone abundantly beyond what we deserve. If you go back to the story the Bible tells in the book of Genesis at the very beginning, God has a relationship with the human beings that he's created. He has a purpose and a destiny for them, and he's made it known verbally. He gives them one command not to eat of the tree. They break that command and it would have been totally reasonable at that point for God to say, fine, and step into silence. But that's not what he does. He continues and consistently makes himself known. When you read the prophets like Isaiah, and you come to the passages where God says, all day long, I have called for you to return. That's God's gracious activity of revelation. And what is the message? The message is an invitation. Turn to me and be saved. God doesn't just call us to salvation. He accomplishes it as part of that revelation as God becomes man, lives the life we cannot live, dies the death that we deserve, and then freely offers us the salvation that he's earned. Jesus, or excuse me, Paul says, if Jesus isn't risen, in other words, if this didn't actually happen in observable space-time, if this isn't actually historical, then we're of all men to be most pitied. And that's especially true of the resurrection because it is the crux of the whole story that the Bible tells. But if this is not the word of God, Christians have no religion. We have no faith. In fact, faith is impossible because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let's pray. Father, everything we're going to talk about in the coming weeks flows from this source and hinges upon this truth. 
And it's so easy for us. It's so easy for us to begin elsewhere. To approach the Bible like we do everything else in our life. Whereas we observe and we use the other authorities of our life, our reason, our rationality, our observations, our experience, our opinions. And then we determine what is true. But if God has truly spoken, then we are the subject and you are the speaker. I pray, God, that you would help us to um, approach the scriptures in these lights, especially for those of us who are Christians. Let us follow in the footsteps of Jesus who had this high view of scripture as being the product of the God who speaks. And for those who are not Christian tonight, God, I ask that they would um, seek to answer this question and not the other questions that are so comfortable to our culture that they would wrestle with the Bible as it proposes to be and come to their conclusions and not just present a Bible that isn't and come to those conclusions. We thank you that you speak. We thank you that you've spoken. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be hearers and doers of the word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, I have a couple of questions from this morning, so I'm going to start with those. Let's begin with this one. Look at that. So this question says, if God speaks to us, how do we distinguish his voice compared to our own? Now, obviously, this is a really important question. As I mentioned earlier tonight, the Bible is the first to recognize uh, the possibility of deception uh, and these types of things. Uh, the first thing I'd like to say in, in answer to this is this is why uh, explaining and understanding what the Bible is is so significant. Okay? Because if the Bible is the word of God, then it also becomes the standard through which we weigh other possible things. I believe, as I said earlier, that God is capable of, and the Bible is a historical representation of the fact that he has spoken in space and time to individual people across history. I see no reason why God can't still do that today. But the New Testament maintains that when we encounter prophecy, for example, or when we encounter the spiritual realm, that we should always test those things. Even if you look at Deuteronomy, both in chapter 13 and chapter 18, uh, God lays out criteria for those who speak to him, or speak for him, excuse me. Uh, and one of the things that it says is basically, if it doesn't line up with God as you know him to be, in other words, the God of the Bible, remember that Deuteronomy and 13 and 18 are in this big book of Moses. If it takes you away from the covenant, what is already written, then he doesn't speak for God. Okay. Um, a second thing that I think is worth saying here, Jesus says that his sheep will know his voice. Okay. 
And the, the illustration that he's pointing to there, you can, you can picture it with me for a second because I think it's helpful. Imagine that multiple shepherds with multiple sheep are feeding them all on the same pasture and then they're heading home for the day. How is it that the right sheep go to the right place? In most Middle Eastern cultures, it's because the shepherds have a song or some sort of a rhyme that they sing and the sheep recognize this song versus that song. My understanding is you can still go to places today in the Middle East and see this is the case. Um, And so that's the illustration he's evoking. He's saying, there are many voices out there, but those who are truly mine will know my voice. John puts it this way in 1 John. He says, you all have the anointing of the Spirit, and you can all discern the voice of God. Now, I would suggest suggest to you that there's both a, um, a part of that that comes with being a Christian, having the Holy Spirit, but there's also a part of it that is learned, okay? Let me give you an illustration. When Peter is walking with Jesus, there's an occasion where Jesus asks him a question. He asks all the disciples, who do people say that I am? And so they list off the answers, the conclusions that people have drawn. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter pipes up and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, I tell you the truth, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my father who is in heaven. What is he saying? He's saying the words that you spoke, you spoke because God revealed them to you. But what happens just a minute later? Jesus goes, I am the Messiah, but I tell you the truth, the Messiah is going to be turned over to Gentiles crucified and died. And Peter stands in the road and he stops Jesus and he says, not so, Lord, that can't be your destiny. And Jesus speaks again and he says, get behind me, Satan. For that is not the things of God, but the things of men. Okay. Here, he has another idea, another opinion, probably riding high on the fact that he just had this recognition, but this idea is nothing short of demonic. Okay. And so what I would suggest to you is that we grow in our ability to hear from the Lord as we hear from the Lord. And the best way to do that is to hear from the full, sufficient compilation of all that God feels you need to know called the Bible. Okay. And so, one last illustration. Just consider the fact with me, if, if you were a brand new Christian and you just close your bedroom door and you get down on your knees and you pray and you ask God to speak to you, your biblical filter is not very big, is it? Right. And let me just say that clearly, clearly God is okay with this. The way that God has chosen to grow us as Christians is progressive, which means you start at the bottom. <laughs> it means you start as immature as a baby, right? And so you grow in your understanding. In fact, I would suggest that in the same way that the Bible says uh, repentance is a regular and consistent model of growth, that's also true of your ideas, even your ideas about God. They should be regularly growing away from a false understanding. But the best way to do that is to take the revelation that is, the revelation that is valid, and learn who God is. Hear his voice so that you can better recognize it. Okay. Let's look at another one. Can we determine God, quote, divinely inspired the decision on the specific collection of today's Bible? 
Early Christians, such as Paul, had a loose collection of scriptures that may have differed between churches. So how is this one now universally known as right? Okay, a couple of things. Uh, first, what we're talking about here is usually labeled canonicity. And I mention that not to just slap a label on this, but so that you can do your own studies in these things. The question is, how do we know which historical writings should be part of our Bible and which are not? How do we know the difference between a divinely inspired, God-given, God-word text and another document? Okay. Um, now, the questioner here makes the point that the early church had a loose collect collection of scriptures. I want to clean up that point because that's a, that's a bad way to put it. Okay? Paul didn't have a loose collection of scriptures. He had a canonized and recognized Jewish scriptures called the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, and by the time of Paul, it was fully and unilaterally completely agreed upon. Okay? Um, in fact, if you read earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul says all scriptures are divinely inspired, chapter 2, Right, thank you. Second Timothy chapter 3. If you read earlier on in the chapter, what he's doing is telling Timothy that he can trust in his faith that he was raised in, his Jewish faith, because through the ministry of his mother and grandmother, he's well acquainted with the scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. And so when he says all scriptures are divinely inspired, that's specifically what he's talking about. Josephus and... Uh, hold on, let me grab his name. so funny. I knew I was going to forget his name beforehand, so I checked, and I just keep losing it. Oh, I'll grab it. Uh, so Josephus was a Jewish historian who was basically hired by Rome to write the history of the Jews uh, leading up to the Roman Empire. Um, and then another guy who was a Jewish teacher, his name uh, begins with a P. Uh, oh, shoot. Anyways, both of them are on record of testifying to the fact that the Jewish canon is closed. On top of that, we have the Greek Septuagint, okay, which is the same one that's quoted throughout the New Testament. Now, it's worth mentioning that the translators of the Septuagint also included some books that we don't recognize as being scripture, but we don't have any Jews in history recognizing those books as scripture either. That's worth pointing out because although this question points out that there's a universal canon, that's not true if you're Catholic. If you're Catholic, you have a different universal Catholic, uh, canon than, uh, than the uh, Protestant Bible, and that's because it includes the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha. Okay? Now, the Apocrypha is mostly made up of these Jewish books that we find in the Septuagint. But, like I said, the Jews didn't recognize them as Scripture, so the ref Reformers, when they realized that, didn't recognize them as Scripture either. This includes books like First and Second Maccabees, which tells the story of Hanukkah. Okay? Um, so the point is, not only by New Testament times is there a, an understood, universal, codified Jewish scriptures, but also every Old Testament book that makes up our current Old Testament is quoted in the New Testament except for a handful, and here they are. Esther, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Obadiah, Nahum, and Zephaniah. Of the 66 books, or sorry, of the 39 books that make up our Old Testament, only seven aren't listed, but those last three, Obadiah, Nahum, and Zephaniah, are all part of the Book of the Twelve, 
which was understood as being one thing, so we can strike that down to just one and say here that we actually just have five or six that aren't included, okay? Um, in fact, that's a good principle in the New Testament as well. Before we ask, how did the church come to an understanding of Scripture, we should ask, does Scripture have an understanding of Scripture? And we can give an absolute yes. Even in the Old Testament, we consistently see the Old Testament authors engaging with other Old Testament authors as being authoritative Scripture, okay? Uh, for example, uh, Daniel is reading what in the days of the Babylonian captivity? The book of Jeremiah. And it's through the prophecy of Jeremiah that he knows that the 70 years of captivity is coming to an end and begins to pray. Ezekiel actually mentions Daniel by name, even though they are almost contemporary. He's familiar with Daniel. Uh, here's one of my favorite ones. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah is arguing with God, and he's mad because God has been merciful to Nineveh. And this is what he says. I knew you were this way, long-suffering, merciful, and slow to anger. How did Jonah know that? Well, he's quoting Deuteronomy. But not only that, he adds a final and something at the end of that that I should know, but since I'm just recalling from memory, this will do, uh, that it doesn't exist in Deuteronomy, but it does exist in Joel's version of Deuteronomy. So we know that Jonah hasn't just read Deuteronomy, but also the prophet Joel. Okay. In the New Testament, it's the same thing. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is divinely inspired, but in 1 Timothy... Paul is talking about compensation for pastors. And he says, because the scripture says, and he makes two quotations. The first is, do not muzzle an ox, which comes from Deuteronomy. And the second is, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do you know where we find that quotation? We find that quotation in the Gospel of Luke. It's the only place where it's written. It's the words of Jesus. Okay? And so Paul sees the Gospel of Luke, his own historical companion, as scripture. Peter does the same thing. And so in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, no prophet spoke of his interpretation, but as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then in the last chapter, he talks about the writings of Paul in particular, and he says, although they are sometimes hard to understand, and many twist them as they do the rest of scripture. The rest of scripture. Peter sees the writings of Paul as being scripture. So how does, how does canon work? Um, in the Old Testament, we don't actually know. There aren't very good records of how this came to be, except I would suggest to you there is a traceable genealogy, will, if you will, of the school of the prophets that are the maintainer of these things. And so we know of the book of Gad and the book of Nathan. Okay, these are the prophets who are referenced. Uh, in the prophets, it will say, this is also written in the, or sorry, in Chronicles, it says, this is also written in the book of Isaiah. There is this school of prophets. There's a heritage and a continuation of these things, collecting these documents. In the New Testament, it's a little bit different. Let's go back to the statement of this question. A loose collection of scriptures that may have differed between churches. Why was that true with the New Testament? It's because as the New Testament was written, it was written to particular churches, right? So Colossians was written to a church in Colossae, okay? And Philippians was written to a church in Philippi. And the Gospel of Mark was most likely written to the church in Rome, okay? And so as these were sent out, they were recognized for what they were in those churches, and then copies were made, and we can see throughout history as those books kind of flow out from those centers, but not everybody had them all at the same time. 
What's significant about the Bible versus the Book of Mormon, for example, is that it wasn't all given all at once and handed to humanity. It was written over 1,400 years across three continents by more than 40 authors, okay? Um, but uh, when we look at what the New Testament church looked for in identifying Scripture, the primary thing was that it was written by the eyewitnesses of Jesus within the first generation of the church. Okay. So, for example, there are other Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, for example. All of them date from at least the second, if not the third uh, century, and so the church has never recognized them as scriptures. The Shepherd of Hermas, which is a devotional work that the church and the early church fathers are tremendously fond of, was written in the early second century and so was not recognized as scripture. And so it took, uh, to, be, to be fair, it took almost 200 years until we had the list of the New Testament books that we have now. But you can watch historically as that list grows. And although there were some that were questioned um, and eventually received, there's none that were received that were eventually rejected. And so what I would suggest to you, and once again, we don't have any place where the early church fathers say, this is how we know what's scripture. We just see them labeling things scripture. There is no qualifications that they lay out, but the clear one and the one that divides this book from that book is that these ones are recognized as being part of the primary mission given to the apostles in the New Testament as representatives of Jesus who spoke for him. Okay? All right. Um, if you, if you want to read good books on canon, there's two by an author named Michael Kruger that I would recognize, uh, recommend. One of them is called Canon Revisited, and the other is not. Uh, but, uh, but that's a good place to study more about those things. Okay. How should we handle fellowship with Christians who hold a King James uh, Version-only view? Okay, so if you're not acquainted, some Christians believe that the King James Bible, what we call the King James Version, is the only real version of Scripture today. And so if you're reading the ESV or the NASB or the NIV, it's just frankly not the Bible. Okay, now, um, first, practically, when it says, how should we handle fellowship with Christians who hold a King James-only view, you should recognize that's not in our hands. And for the most part, you can't, because they won't, okay? Uh, that's just their standard. That's, that's where, where they are. Uh, they are especially haters of the NIV. And the logic blows my mind. The last time I read a King James Version-only argument, this is what it said. The King James Version is based on the Textus Receptus, which is the same text through Jerome uh, that, that we get the Latin Vulgate out of. Now, that's actually problematic because Jerome didn't have all of our New Testament, uh, and so as he was working to make his Greek manuscript from, uh, he actually reverse-engineered the Latin Vulgate. Now, we have a lot older manuscripts now from the Latin Vulgate, and so those are incorporated in even the New King James as well as the NSB, those types of things. But um, here's the argument for the NIV. They say that because it doesn't rely on the Textus Receptus, but those documents we found in Alexandria, Alexandria is in Egypt, they say Egypt in the Bible is always a picture of sin, so why can you trust a sinful resource? Okay. These are the types of arguments that exist. 
Um, here's another suggestion that I would make. Okay. The Quran is only the Quran in its original language. It cannot be translated. When it is, it's merely an aid and is no longer scripture. Christians have in general not believed that to be the case because let me point out to you, even the Catholic Church holds their scripture in Latin and even the King James Version holds it in King James English, not the language that it was written in. The reason why translation makes sense from a Christian concept is because God came incarnate in human flesh. Okay? He took on human language to make himself known. In fact, you can see the early church wrestling with the reality of the gospel going forth as they take what is Jewish custom and what is Jewish history and ask, do you have to be Jewish to know God? And they consistently come up with the answer, no. And so there is a translation of these things. And so because Jesus, for the sake of being understood, translated, if you will, it makes sense that Christians would as well. And that's my last and, and most obvious final straw with King James-only Christians. Who is that Bible for? At the very best, English speakers. There's an entire world out there that doesn't speak English. It doesn't make any sense except for ethnocentric reasons to elevate a particular translation in a particular language as being the sole version of Scripture. How do we know when the revelation of Scripture stopped? Okay. Um, once again, when it comes to the Old Testament, um, both Josephus and Philo, there's his name. I kept thinking phileo, which is the Greek word for love. Uh, and then I kept thinking philodo, which was closer, but still not right. Uh, philo, both of them maintain that the canon was closed, and for the same reason, Okay. In fact, uh, Josephus presents it of the validity, or presents his view as being validating that the Jewish Bible is really scripture because it hasn't been added to in hundreds of years. That it closed with the age of the prophets. And so um, the 400 years that Daniel talks about that exist between the Old and the New Testament, there's a close of canon there. There's a transition there. When it comes to the New Testament, the significance is uh, that there are no longer eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, and so those who were commissioned by Jesus to be his verbal rep, uh, representatives and given his spirit to ensure the validity of their message, they no longer walk the earth. Now, I want to be clear here, that doesn't mean that God no longer speaks. And it also, going back to that canonicity, doesn't guarantee and we're in hypotheticals here, but it doesn't guarantee that we couldn't find another book of the Bible, okay? Now, I would suggest to you that the same God who is so providential that he appoints prophets before they're born and lays out their whole, whole life and work, who orchestrates all of history to culminate in Jesus, is totally capable of providentially preserving the Bible that he wanted to have. But even if that weren't the case, uh, the validation of what made it scripture would be the same of what makes everything else scripture, okay?
Is revelation primarily intellectual or spiritual? Is it facts and information, or is it the revelation of the person of Christ? And if it's spiritual and personal, then is it not at least possible to believe without the scriptures, albeit imperfectly? Okay. Uh, as we've seen tonight, although I don't think anyone would deny that revelation is spiritual, in the sense that it is done by God, and, and here's where language really fails us, okay? Uh, because if I say done by God uh, and in a spiritual fashion, that makes us think that God didn't speak to human beings in the same way human beings speak to one another. Although that may be possible, it's clearly not the case in certain places. Okay? And so God is fully capable of speaking with a human voice as he did in Jesus. Okay? Um, and so we've got to watch out for this disconnection of spiritual and physical. It's a, a false dichotomy that we can't hold as Christians because uh, this is, I'll give you another illustration, natural and supernatural. So that's why I said general revelation and not natural revelation. Because although we would think of the world as being nature, its cause, according to the Bible, is miraculous. God made it, ex nihilo, out of nothing, by his speech. And so saying that this is Un, or, or this is natural, and then talking about supernatural revelation is, is probably a, a misnomer as well. But getting to the heart of what's being asked here, we have to recognize here that the revelation that makes up the scripture is absolutely facts and information. There is a content to God's revelation. It's not numinous. It's not left and void. It's not just an encounter with the divine that is incomprehensible. It comes in language. As we'll see in the weeks to come, this is really good news, because if God chooses to, uh, to reveal himself grammatically, then we can have some confidence in knowing what he means, because he's playing by the rules, right? Uh, and then the second question here, if it's spiritual and personal, then is it not least possible to believe without the scriptures, albeit imperfectly? Next week, we will talk about the necessity of scripture at length. And that's exactly the question is, is the Bible necessary to know God? Now, tonight, let me just point out a few things. One, uh, one, God is fully capable of revealing himself outside of the scriptures. Okay? And that's even how we got the scriptures. God speaks to particular people at particular times through prophets and dreams and visions and these types of things. Um, however, uh, however, I would suggest to you that that revelation, because it culminates in the perfection of Jesus Christ, uh, is always corresponding with the scriptures and usually flows from the source of the scriptures. Obviously, I can walk into a country that's never heard the name of Jesus and does not speak any English, and I may or may not have a Bible, but I can learn their language, and tell them about Jesus in a way that they can be saved. But the source of that information is what? The Word of God. Okay. And so, uh, so here, this is an essential thing, but what I would suggest to you is faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and since what saves us is belief in Jesus Christ, we do have a bare minimum requirement of the message that we are saved by, which is that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus has died, and uh, therefore we can be forgiven. Uh, here's a suggestion, and it's a good one. 
Seven Reasons Why You Can Trust the Bible. Um, uh, it's, it's just a good suggestion if you were looking for a place to move forward. Is there anything else divinely inspired outside of scriptures and how would we know? Okay, two things. One, we believe the scriptures are the scriptures because they're divinely inspired. That's not just how we got them, it's one of their defining traits. Now I know that sounds like circular knowledge or circular reasoning, but what I mean here is that what makes scripture scripture is its origin, okay? Um, and the second question, how would we know has to come to the attributes of what makes God's word God's word. And this means two different things to two different types of people, okay? If you're not a Christian, you're in a pickle with the conversation we're having tonight because it's all well and good to say that the Bible declares itself to be, uh, to be the scriptures, to be divinely inspired, but how am I to know that they're trustworthy? How do I know to know that they're really true? And I would suggest to you, to some degree, it's the same way we come to conclusions on how we know anything is true. Okay. And that involves a few things. One is uh, any system of truth to be true should be internally consistent without contradiction. Okay. And the second is that it should correspond to real life. Now that may sound to you like it's being lost because the Bible talks about things that happened in history uh, that are only verifiable through dead witnesses. But I would suggest to you that we're not just comparing it to what is possible. You can't just say, well, I don't believe miracles are possible because I've never seen one. That's a relatively narrow perspective to start with. Um, but instead, the question is, does the Bible explain the big issues in life in a way that makes life comprehensible? And I would suggest, unlike anything else I've ever read or encountered, it does. It, un it understands both the glory and the tragedy of the human condition. It explains the significance of the possibility of meaning in life and the corruption that we reveal and the, the despair that we experience. Um, and so, for me, the Bible makes sense of life in a way that nothing else does, okay? Now, for Christians, how would we know if anything else was divinely inspired? Uh, I would suggest to you, once again, uh, that the question we have to ask first is one about where does Scripture come from? Okay. And then the question has to do with uh, what would it take for Revelation to be complete? Okay. Now, I think it's kind of a shortcut to point out the fact that the book of Revelation that closes our New Testament warns for anyone who would add to that book or take away from that book, because obviously... He's talking primarily about solely his book of Revelation, okay? Um, but if Jesus is the culmination, the final capstone of Revelation, and those he appointed and gave a unique empowering of the Holy Spirit to speak on his behalf are dead, I would suggest that's a pretty good terminus for the possibility of Scripture being written, okay? Because the story that God is telling has come to its conclusion, not because the story ends with Jesus, that's why we have the book of Revelation, but the testimony of that story has ended with the apostles of Jesus. Oh, I'm so glad someone asked this. How ought a Christian to begin to interact or evangelize with others who accept a form of postmodern Christian beliefs with a relativistic hermeneutic? 
Great question. First, let me give you a really thorough answer. Please read Francis Schaeffer's The God Who Is There. It is seriously the most informed and best resource out there on this. And if you're unfamiliar with Francis Schaeffer, he was effectively an expert in philosophy and art who gave his life to engaging intellectuals to help them understand Christianity. God who is there is not just touching on the things that we talked about tonight, although it does. I drew a lot from Schaefer in my own understanding of these things, but he also walks through the history that I only mentioned. He starts with Hegel and shows how that flowed both through the philosophers and through the art scene as well as within the church theologically. And this is the suggestion that he makes, and this is the short answer that I would give is that as much as it should grieve us to do so, and as much as we should do it with compassion, we need to help people see the conclusions of what they actually believe. We take them where they are, and we help them follow through their beliefs to where they clearly believe. And so we show that they deny them any possibility of love or significance or reality. Okay, he calls this taking the roof off. Because he says all postmoderns, all deconstructionists, all of these people live with a roof protecting them from their own conclusions. And so we have to, as painful as it should be to us, and it should, he says, be painful to us, help them to see what those things are. Here's one illustration he gives, not one that I would necessarily recommend. Schaefer earns the right to behave this way. He was once talking with a man uh, who believed that all morality was relative, that cruelty was just as equal to goodness. And he, Schaefer, and two of his friends who were sitting there pinned him to the ground and held a knife to his throat. Okay, that's intense. And like I said, I, I would not suggest that's where you begin. But what he wanted this man to do was to recognize that he doesn't actually believe what he say, says he believes. Um, the only place that postmodernism leads to is despair. And so we kind of have to let people taste it. Uh, The other thing that I would suggest as well that's really important here, we have to take the time to describe the fullness of a Christian view. Even in a non-Christian traditional society, there's a lot of overlap between the Christian message and the culture you're reaching. If you're working in an Islamic nation, a sense of morality and of guilt, and that guilt being objective and not subjective, so not a feeling, but an actual reality with consequences, uh, those things are overlapping, and so when we talk about sin, when we talk about guilt, and even when we present the death of Jesus, it makes sense. With a postmodern who has none of that exposure, we have to take a lot more time to define our terms. We have to translate. But please, read The God Who Is There or or many others of of Schaefer's books. What are your thoughts on theistic existentialism like Kierkegaard? Okay, if you're not familiar, Kierkegaard basically found himself in the same pickle that we've been talking about tonight. That the external, where all the meaning of life, where personality, where love, where God, where all of that is, is shut down by modernism, by starting with ourselves. And so what he effectively suggested was that that requires a leap of faith. 
He takes Isaac as an example and the sacrifice of Isaac. He says, there is nothing to Abraham that would make sense of the command to kill his son. The only way he can respond to it is to just leap out and believe. Okay. The problem is uh, that Kierkegaard has basically taken the same solution that half of the postmoderns or half of the moderns have taken outside, which is basically just live like it was there even though you have no reason to do so. It doesn't really solve the problem at all. And, like I said, it falls short of the biblical story. So he may be able to make sense of that story with Isaac, but he can't even make sense of the rest of the story with Abraham. Okay? Abraham has a long history of validated experiences with God and hearing his voice. The sacrifice of Isaac is not the first test of Abraham, it's the final it comes from 25 years of God making promises, making his way clear, and then in his old age and his wife's infertility and her menopause, bringing about a miraculous child. We talked earlier about discerning the voice of God. What's the difference between Abraham and a woman in Southern California who drowns her kids because God told her to? This is the difference. Verifiable in time and history over time, experiencing the living God. Unfortunately, as much as Kierkegaard may try and solve our problem, he really only perpetuates it. And in doing so, he denies the clear witness of Scripture that God actually speaks, and that that speaking is not some sort of incomprehensible encounter with the unknown, but is actually comprehensible and has actual content. Most of Kierkegaard's followers uh, take uh, the new orthodox, like Karl Barth, at best all they have is faith and faith, faith and faith. The content is irrelevant. Okay. Okay, I'm going to refresh and grab one more and then we're going to close for the night. If I didn't get a chance to answer your question tonight, um, then I, uh, I will do so via text because I can do that this week. Let's finish with this one. How should prophecies or words of knowledge, as in some charismatic or Pentecostal churches, be handled, i.e., God says, thus and so? Okay. For this, it'd be best for us to turn to a particular passage. Uh, so let me grab my Bible. Um, turn to the letters of Thessalonians. If you didn't know, all the New Testament books that begin with T touch one another. So if you find one, you're close. Timothy's, Titus, Thessalonians. Not in that order. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. Notice that Paul here wants the Thessalonians to avoid two errors. One is shutting down the possibility of the prophetic gifts at all. Don't despise prophecies. Don't reject it out of hand as being too creepy or not something God does anymore or a thousand other ways we could explain it away. 
He says they're gifts that are given by God in other places and they're for the edification of the church. Okay? Now it's worth pointing out here, as we said earlier, that not all prophecy is predictive. Okay? And so much of the prophesying that Paul talks about in the New Testament does not involve foretelling the future, although it's inexcusable. There's no getting around it. We do see elements of that in the book of Acts. Think of the prophet Agabus and the coming famine in Jerusalem. Um, so here, that's one ditch that we fall in, is rejecting it out of hand. But the other is to receive it without consideration. And so he goes on and he says, but test, test everything and hold fast to what is good. Now, I would suggest to you that test has, um, has a predecessor in the book of Deuteronomy that the test in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 18 and 13 and the test in the New Testament is similar. We could have also turned to 1 John where he talks about how we should discern spirits. It's talking about the same thing. Um, but effectively, a major portion of it is comparing what is said with the God who has spoken and what the God who has spoken has clearly said. Okay? In fact, even when Paul talks about prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, and he suggests uh, that those prophecies need to be judged, I would suggest to you from the context, those who are called to do the judging are those who have been committed to the doctrine of Scripture and teaching it, in other words, pastors. And we don't have time for me to extrapolate that whole position. But his testing in 1 Corinthians is clearly rooted in the office of authoritative proclamation of thus says the word of God. And so I would suggest to you that that's where we need to be. Um, and, and I would also suggest to you that if we avoid both of those ditches in the church, that prophecy becomes a significant value without being a terrible danger. All right, it's getting late, uh, and I have a 4 a.m. flight. So we're going to close tonight. Thank you all for coming out. Thank you for your questions. As I mentioned, if I didn't get to your question tonight, I will deal with it directly uh, this week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending your son. And thank you that we can know the true and living God because you have truly made yourself known. I ask God that we would interact with your scriptures and with your son at this level, Lord, not as being a, just one of many inputs or one of many counselors, not just as being uh, something that may be of benefit or devotional value, but as the things that God spoke because they're the things that we need to know. Help each one with that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.